0: I invite you to Matthew chapter 20. We are continuing our study through this wonderful gospel. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. And when you find Matthew 20, go ahead and place a mark at uh, Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at Philippians chapter 2 at the end of the message today. So, Matthew chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 28. I'm reading through, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in our vestibule and also in our overflow, we would love for you to pick up a Bible today as our gift to you. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of this portion of Scripture? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you. A last is first test. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help today. Father, we are so thankful today for the freedoms that we enjoy. We recognize, Lord, that they are many sons and daughters of the kingdom. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who do not know the joy of the freedom of assembly even today. There are churches and believers who have to find secret places and some are even on the run Some churches are underground. Some churches meet and, and speak and whispers. And yet the church continues. Freedom or no freedom. The church continues because there's a greater freedom. There's a freedom from sin. There's a freedom from separation from God. There's a freedom to eternal life. So we thank you, Father, that as we assemble and enjoy the freedoms that have been given to us and have been so costly, and we're so thankful for them, we're thankful, Father, that the purpose for why we have assembled runs so much deeper, runs so much deeper. So help us, Father, as, as we exercise our freedom to assemble, that we would do so, Father, in a way in which we are bringing you glory and honor exalting your Son, worshiping and glorifying you for all that you have done for us in Christ, especially today as we look to this passage and we hear from Christ and we hear him speak of what he's going to do in order to secure our freedom to eternal life. What a wonderful, wonderful passage for us to be looking at. And examining today on Memorial Day weekend. So help us today, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Bless the communication and the reception. May your word go forward and not return void. Do something great among your people today. Do something great among those who are not of your people today. work in our lives and in our hearts in such a way that draws us closer to you and further away from ourselves and further detached from the world around us and more like kingdom citizens. We love you and praise you, Lord, and without you, without your grace, there would be no reason for us to assemble. So all the glory and praise goes to you today and once again change us into your likeness. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. A last is first test. Now back in chapter 18, if you remember when we studied that chapter, the disciples asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So it's kind of like here when James and John's mother comes back around with this request. She's almost forcing the issue that the disciples asked about, inquired about in chapter 18. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in response to their question, you remember Jesus calls a child to himself. And, and he sets that child in the middle of the disciples And he answers their question by saying, well, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So totally a a reversal, a total unexpected answer and response in terms of how we think in this world so, the visual illustration was, was both very enlightening and, and, and revealing at the same time. Greatness in God's kingdom is not determined by power or might or position, but rather by humility, the exact opposite of what we think of when we think of greatness. No power, no prestige, no accolade, no fame no fortune, humility. God's kingdom economy is, is an absolute reversal of the order of the world, an absolute reversal of the order in which we think of things. Greatness is, is rather demonstrated by a rare humility that, that seeks to serve others rather than to be served by others. When we think of greatness, we think of people all around us, you know, cheering us or serving us or applauding us. That would be greatness. But Jesus is saying, no, actually the greatness is are the ones who are doing the applauding. The ones who are doing the serving, the ones who are doing the cheering, the ones who are doing the encouraging. True faith is, is portrayed in a humble, childlike faith that simply takes God at his word. Now, Jesus is going to reiterate this very same teaching about humility further in Matthew, in Matthew 23 and verse 12, Jesus will say this, "'Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted.'" Which is another way of saying, whoever becomes like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But this is not the only time, in chapter 18, is not the only time the disciples hear this kind of teaching from Jesus. The whole point of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which we studied a few weeks back... The whole point of that parable was to explain what Jesus meant when he concluded a teaching by saying that, you know, many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he teaches this parable to explain what that means. Greatness in the kingdom, first place in the kingdom, comes by way of contentment. Contentment with God's gracious sovereignty in our lives. God places us where we need to be. God ordains our station in life. God calls us to his vineyard in his timing. And he bestows abundant grace upon all of his people. So believers are to be like those last workers that were called to the vineyard in the very last moment, in the very last hour. We, we are to be content people and, and thankful people because our God is gracious and sovereign. And that's how greatness is measured in the kingdom of heaven. Those last, those last will be first because they are the ones who are, who are thankful and grateful and content. And Jesus has barely finished all of this teaching on humility and contentment and, and acknowledging and being satisfied. just finished teaching on all of this. He's, he's barely finished teaching on how greatness is measured by these standards, by these rules in God's kingdom. Humility, contentment, gratefulness, not position, not power, not... Not authority, worldly authority. And here come two of his most loved disciples, James and John, asking for exactly that position and power and prominence. He's just finished teaching. Either they, they just don't get it, Or they are quick to forget. And we are just like them, aren't we? Let's let's just go ahead and admit it. We're just like them. Either we just don't get it or just don't want it, or we're just horribly forgetful. Just like James and John here. And that's why the Bible calls us sheep. It's difficult. It's very difficult not to get wet when you're swimming in the ocean. And it's difficult not to adhere to the world's way of thinking and living and running your life and making decisions and basing your entire worldview on on the things of the world. It's difficult not to do that when you're living in the world each and every day. I saw an article just this week that said the reason why we need to be in church every single week is because we are, we are so forgetful. And it's absolutely true. We're so forgetful, spiritually forgetful. We need to be reminded of the things of God often on a regular basis to reorient our thinking and our living and our worldview and our priorities and our perspective and our hearts. Everything needs to be realigned and reordered often because we are swimming in an ocean called the world. And the world is not the kingdom, and the world is not salvation. And the world is not ultimate truth. But the scripture is. So we need to often find ourselves back around, gathered around truth. And that's where these disciples are. Even though they've been so forgetful, these disciples needed to be reminded of God's ways. And so do we. So the first thing that we see in verses 20 through 23 is these disciples, then they are seeking first place. And a couple of things we should note that kind of helps set the the context of this conversation when you see the mother come up and make this request, there's a few things for us to know. And first of all is that James and John, you know, they're not unaware of what their mother's up to here. So it's not like she's doing something behind their back, you know, trying, trying to promote her boys without, without letting them know. They know exactly what's happened. In fact, they have probably prodded her to go speak to Jesus, not, not them. They want to they send their mom to do this work for them. And we know that all three of them are in agreement with this request that's been made to Jesus because when Jesus replies... And when he says, are you able to drink the cup, he's directing that reply to James and John, not to the mother. And they are the ones that respond to him. So Jesus knows they're all three in it. It's the mom that makes the request, but James and John are well aware of what's going on. Second interesting thing about this conversation is their mother is likely Salome, who is Jesus' mother, Mary, it's her sister. We're looking at other references in the gospel. This is probably Jesus' aunt. James and John are probably his cousins. So it could possibly be, in fact, it's hard to not see it this way, that James and John are applying a little family pressure in this request. Sending your mom's sister, to make this request of your own family. Now, we, we, we can say some good things about their mom, too. I mean, she's, she's a true believer. There's no doubt about that. I mean, when you look at the request that she's making, it indicates how much faith she does have in Christ and in who he is. Now, Jesus has just recently taught, if you remember, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus, in verse 28, he's, he's just told the disciples that he's going to return and he's going to sit on his glorious throne. So he's announcing to them that he's the king of God's kingdom. He's going to return. He's going to sit on the throne. He's the king. This is his kingdom. And when he does that, they are going to also sit on 12 thrones with him. So, in fact, this mother absolutely believes Jesus. She believes who he is. She believes what he's going to do. She believes the kingdom is coming and that he's the king. That he's going to sit on a throne. That his disciples are going to sit on thrones with him. She has no question about that. That's why she's making this request. She absolutely believes those things are true so she does have a measure of true faith. However, here in her request is where sin and pride and selfishness gets mingled in with her faith. And that's often the case with us as well, isn't it? And we believe... We believe the things are absolutely true, but all of a sudden we stick ourselves in the middle of the situation and pride and selfishness and and all of these things get involved and our way gets included. And all of a sudden getting mingled with our faith are all of these other things that are getting in the way of our faith. It's not good enough that our sons sit on thrones in the kingdom (laughs) what an amazing truth but that's not good enough they should sit on the thrones closest to jesus in other words if he's the king she wants jesus to promise that the place of prominence among the disciples among the 12 should be given to james and john in the new world And since Jesus has taught about his death and resurrection, he's just finished speaking of that in verses 17 and 18 and 19. This new world might come at any day. It could come at any time. So she needs to hurry up and get this settled now. After all, Jesus, we're family. Now, I know you think a lot of those other ten guys over there, but we're family. They are your cousins. I am your loving aunt. I bounced you on my knee as you grew up. These two boys of mine are among the inner circles of the disciples anyway. Surely they of all the disciples deserve the first seats. The first seats. They've... they've I guess they've just totally forgotten the parable, right? Of the first workers and the last workers, of contentment and grace and sovereignty and humility. So Jesus responds in two ways. And the first thing he does is he, he adds to the teaching on greatness. We, we've already learned that greatness in the kingdom is measured by humility. But it not only involves humility, but humility in the kingdom often entails great suffering. Those who serve often suffer. Those who humble themselves often do so at a At a cost. The path to exaltation in the kingdom is a path of suffering. And that's why Jesus says in his response, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus is speaking figuratively here of his coming suffering upon which he is just taught about in verse 19. And in verse 19 of chapter 20, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going... the, The chief priests are going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. And here he says, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. That's his cup. I'm going to suffer. So he asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? because you see what prompted the question was what Jesus said over in Matthew 19:28 In the new world I will come and sit on my glorious throne and you 12 will sit on thrones with me But before Matthew 19:28 occurs Matthew 20:19 will occur Before Jesus returns in the new world on his glorious throne, he will take up a cross. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. Then, after his suffering, then he will return and sit on his glorious throne. Are you able to drink that kind of cup? In other words, if you, if you desire that kind of exaltation, if you desire to sit at my right hand and, and, and at my left hand, are you aware of the suffering, of the path of suffering that I'm going to follow in order to arrive at that throne? Are you able to walk that path as well? And James and John bless their hearts right and bless their faith here they say we are able i don't i don't think they are unaware of what he's speaking about i think they they know what the language drink the cup means and they are saying we we are we are willing to suffer i don't think they know to the degree that jesus is talking about for himself but they at least affirm their willingness to suffer for the sake of the kingdom And Jesus foretells here that they will indeed drink a similar cup. That actually James and John do have a cup to drink. They do have a path of suffering on their way to exaltation and glory. Acts chapter 12 verse 2 reports the martyrdom of James. He's beheaded by Herod. Revelations chapter 1 verse 9 tells of John's banishment to the isle of Patmos. They will suffer. They will have a cup to drink. So Jesus' point of reply is to teach his disciples by way of reminding them and instructing them that following him means that there is a cross before there is a crown. so make sure you're ready to endure the cross make sure you've counted the cost make sure you're ready to pay the price because there will be one there is a cross before there is a crown and the second point of Jesus's reply is to remind them of the of the lesson of the the parable of the workers god is sovereign God determines our station in this life and the life to come. All of those things are in God's hands, and, and He's much wiser than we are. And He's just, and He's good, and He's faithful. And He places us exactly where we need to be. In our selfish, fallen thinking, it might not be where we want to be, but upon Isn't it enough that you have already been told that you will sit upon a throne in the new kingdom? Shouldn't our response be gratitude for grace rather than seeking to climb a little bit further than this guy who's also going to be there? You see, when Jesus teaches a lesson like the last will be first, he's not just making... He's not just making up a story to kind of give us a nice spiritual feeling, a nice spiritual motivational thought for the day. He's teaching the reality of the kingdom. This is actually how it's going to be, this is how it works, this is how God is. And this is our response to him. So this, this question that the mother brings to Jesus is kind of testing what Jesus has just taught. Is that really true? Is this really how the kingdom works? Is God really sovereign and gracious like this? And are we actually to be just content and, and thankful and full of gratitude like that? Is, is that what that means? And when you read through the question and the answer, the, the answer is yes. Nothing changes. Nothing changes because my aunt has secretly requested now that my two cousins sit on thrones. Nothing changes about the kingdom over that. We don't change the things of God. We don't change the order of God. We don't change the sovereignty of God. We respond to it. And the only response that we should have as people of the kingdom is response of praise and glory and gratitude. So there's the seeking first place. And then the second thing we see, the second lesson here in verses 24 through 27, the way of the world and the way of believers. And so the ten, they hear about this, right? And they, they were indignant at these two brothers, because this, this, is the, this is the way of the world. The way of the world is to climb to the top by, by whatever means to, to, ne- to the neglecting or abusing or mistreating of others to get what you want or what you, what you think you deserve. This is the, these, two, these two disciples were saying, Let, let's put the other ten to the side for a minute and think about me. Worldly rulers, Jesus says, exercise their power in this way. They they dominate, they they oppress, they they use others to their own selfish advantage. That's the way of the world. That's what Jesus means when he says rulers of the Gentiles, that is people who are not of the faith. They lord it over them, they they exercise authority, They, they show themselves big over them. The way of the world then always results in jealousy and envy and strife. See? See what's happening with the disciples here? Now they're at odds with one another because the way of the world has gotten involved in the way of the kingdom. So now these ten are thinking, who does James and John think? They're, they're not the only ones that left everything. We all left everything. Who do they think they are? How dare they think they deserve more than we? These disciples are a little angry with the insolence of James and John and probably probably a little myth that they didn't think about it themselves. I wish I would have asked him first. But Jesus says the way of believers is not the way of the world. Jesus says there in verse 26, It shall not be so among you. The way of believers is not the way of the world. So he's correcting their thinking. He's correcting the motivation. What motivated them to ask that question in the first place is a worldly way of thinking and advancing that has nothing to do with the kingdom. The kingdom way is is an upside down pyramid. Greatness is not at the top. It's at the bottom. It's not about position and power. It's about service and love. It's not about what others can provide and do for us. It's about what we can provide and do for others. The way of the, the believer is the opposite of the world. And that's the way it is with everything in Our faith in Christ, true faith, is radically counter-culture at every step of the way. Everything about the believer is walking an opposite path, an opposite direction. If we find ourselves walking in the same direction as the world, we have turned the wrong way. That's the point. Jesus says, it it shall not be so among you. The way of faith looks totally different. It treats others totally different. It's not about what we can get, but rather what we can give. And you see how Jesus illustrates this whoever would be great among you must be your servant so he goes from the greatest the in our minds the the greatest of all positions to the lowest of all positions and in the kingdom that actually flips that lowest of all positions is the greatest of all positions in the kingdom nowhere else but in the kingdom And then he really emphasizes that and he kind of repeats the same thing but takes it a little further, doesn't he? In verse 27, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So we go from the very top in our minds, the first must be your slave. That's that's the very bottom position that you can possibly the very state of humanity that you can possibly imagine jesus says in the kingdom that's actually where it's reversed those who are in the bottom who are the servants who are the ones who are thought to be useless meaningless worthless are actually the ones who are the greatest in the kingdom Because they are the ones doing the kingdom work. They are the ones serving. They are the ones loving. They are the ones reaching. Serve others. In other words, Jesus is saying, serve others to the degree that you begin to look more like their slave than their peer. That's what he says, isn't it? Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Serve others to that degree. If we we radically love people like that as believers for the sake of the kingdom, for the gospel of Christ, that's kingdom greatness. And that's kingdom greatness because that's exactly how the king of the kingdom Loves you. And that's what we see in verse 28. The way of believers is the way of the Savior. Jesus is not teaching us to walk down a path that he himself is not already walking and will complete. So in verse 28, he says, even as... So, in other words, he's saying, you're following me, right? You are my disciples and you're following me. So, I'm, this is your path. You're, you're going to be servants. You're going to be slaves to others for the kingdom of heaven, for, the, for kingdom's sake. Now, the reason why you're going to be there is because that, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where I go. You're following me. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, there being, of course, we know, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the glorious, eternal, infinite Son of God, came to the world to serve. To serve. And to serve in the greatest way possible. To give my life as a ransom for many. Memorial Day is about so many who have given their lives for the freedom of many. Christianity is about the one who has given his life to ransom Many. To ransom many. He voluntarily lays down his life for the benefit and the blessing of undeserving people. That's us. That's you and me. A ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is a payment made in order to secure the freedom of a slave. Ransom is the name of the payment. Jesus says, I've come to be a payment... To free those who are enslaved. Many. So not all will be freed. But many will. And I come to make sure that they are. I come to free them. And the way to free them is to give my life for them. To give my life as a payment for them. So now in verse 28. We're understanding the purpose Of verse 19 I'm going to be mocked I'm going to be flogged I'm going to be crucified why because I'm giving my life as a ransom a ransom that's how Jesus describes his own death in other words his life is a payment for sin so that I might be freed from my enslavement to my own sin and that enslavement includes my guilt it includes my punishment for my own rebellion against god it includes the fact that i can't free myself i need someone to redeem me i need someone to pay for me i need a ransom payment And Christ says, that's what I am. That's why I came. So Jesus then is is not only our Savior by being our ransom. He is our chief example. He says, so even as I came in this way, you too live this way. If you want to be great in the kingdom, yes, Christ, there's there's no greater person in the kingdom than the Son of God. But if you want to be great in the kingdom, follow me. Live like this. Serve like this. Give your life for others and for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. Love like this. our life of sacrificial service, it isn't the same as Jesus's. We don't save people by serving them and loving them in sacrificial, self-denying ways as Jesus. We don't save people by being their servant as Jesus saved us by being our servant, but we do point them to the Savior by the way we live our lives. We do point them to To something greater than this world. Listen very carefully. We point people to something greater than this world by living distinctly different than this world. This is the problem with not being different. With the church looking no different, talking no different, acting no different. So in his place and grateful and satisfied with God's sovereignty and his placement in our lives, and we are loving others and serving others and denying self for the sake of the kingdom, then something is going on in us that is radically different than's going on in the world because they are all climbing all over each other to get a pat on the back or a like on the social media account. Jesus says, if you love like this, no, we won't save anybody, but we will definitely point them to the only salvation and the only hope they have by living this kind of radical, self denying, sacrificial, counterculture servant love. What could possibly be greater as citizens of the kingdom than bringing others into it? Think of all, those, all, all of your relationships, all of your friendships, all of your acquaintances. Think about your status with them. What could possibly be greater than seeing them come into the kingdom? And how are we living To compel them to do so. Jesus says that's greatness. That's how to be great. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. And we'll see Paul give us this great Christology of what Jesus has just taught. Paul explains it, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, greatness in the kingdom comes through humble servant sacrifice. That was the way of the Savior and that is the way Of the saved. Have this mind in you. Which is yours. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens. Pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church. Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com. To hear more sermons. Read blogs. And learn more about the missions branch. P67 missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.